Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm one of today's co-hosts, Alok Tai. I'm the VP of Life Sciences at Ignite, and we're a secure content platform focused on key global industries. Hi, I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, today's other co-host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a two-sided marketplace that leverages software to match top-tier life sciences expertise to biotech companies in order to accelerate their development. I'm excited to welcome Diego Ardigo, Rare Diseases R&D Unit Head at Chiesi Group. Thanks for joining us today, Diego. Thanks, Rahul and Alok, for inviting me. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, We're excited to have you on. So perhaps as a starting point, Diego, we'd love to just understand your background and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a physician by training and was born in uh, in Italy and internal medicine specialty and then got a PhD in cardiovascular pathophysiology in, at Parma University in Italy and then a postdoc in cardiovascular genomics at Stanford University in the US and postgraduate course in pharmaceutical medicine at the University of Cardiff in the UK. And I started my career at academic level in, in Italy and then I moved into industry and I joined Kesey in 2010 and uh, I've been working mainly in, initially in clinical development and then uh, overall R&D and currently I'm leading the R&D group for the rare disease business in KSE. And uh, uh, within uh, within my career, I've been working on um, several products, especially biotech and also advanced therapies. And I've been the leader for the clinical development and the registration of the first uh, medicinal product containing stem cells in the EU. And also I led uh, the team that brought to the commercialization of uh, and the treatment of the first patient with the commercial gene therapy in the Western world. I'm also working and active in, in some uh, group and association, trade association like UCOP, the European Confederation of Pharmaceutical Entrepreneurs, where I'm one of the board members, and the uh, International Rare Disease Research Consortium, where I'm the chairman of the Therapeutic Scientific Committee. Great. Thanks for that background, Diego. What prompted you to start to explore biotech? Was that something that you had been thinking about all along during your education or something that you just wanted to try out? Well, actually not. I started with the idea of doing academic research, so some clinical practice, mainly clinical research. And then uh, in a way, I discovered that I loved uh, that kind of research that was close to development that included things like engineering, project management, and multidisciplinary approach. And when I, you know, start doing some consultancies for a number of companies, then I discovered that that was the way I wanted to tackle the problem that was in a way the Premier League or the Series A being Italian of of the job. And that's what I loved. That's great. Well, there's definitely a lot of individuals who are probably listening today that are early on in their career. As you think about that transition into a a leadership role and into a a pharmaceutical one, any piece of advice you could give to uh, the next generation as they contemplate the same decision? Well, let's say that especially if you start with a biologics or, or a medical training, you're not acquainted and ready with a lot of engineering concept, uh, commercial concept, economic concept, and, and project management and other things that are really far away from what they teach you in, in medical school. So you have, I think you have to feel, you have to love medicine, but to feel a little bit out of place. 
to feel a little bit like the ugly duck of physicians. And on the other side, you need to be eager to learn and learn things that are completely outside of your world. So if you find that the world is very small, that's where you start thinking about something so radically different. And you'll never stop learning. The starting point is so far. You know, we'd love to learn a little bit about Kieze and the company, its origins. Obviously, uh, it's a family-owned company, which certainly is quite unique given the current sort of pharmaceutical landscape. So, yeah, we'd love to learn more about the organization. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Kieze was born 85 years ago, 1935, from the Kieze family, of course, still completely owned by the Kieze family and uh, you know, started like a pharmacy with a small back office and back lab for preparing small preparation ointments, uh, et cetera, and grew up up to today where we are almost 6,000 employees, about 2 billion revenues and direct present in 29 countries. And some of our products are sold in more than 60 countries in the world. It's a research-driven company. We're investing more than 20%, actually almost 22% last year of our revenues in research and development. And we have uh, more than 800 people working in R&D and various places, uh, mainly Europe, but we are growing our presence in the US as well. And the company is actually focused on three main therapeutic areas. The primary one in terms of revenues and size is respiratory and where we are working on uh, asthma, COPD, so large indication, especially on the more specialistic side, so with, with severe asthma and severe COPD, uh, but also with some much smaller uh, uh, respiratory diseases like pulmonary hypertension or uh, IPS cystic fibrosis, etc. The second big area is um, neonatology, where we are the worldwide market leader for surfactants. Surfactants are a molecule that enables an improvement in uh, respiratory function in respiratory distress syndrome of preterm neonates. And here we cover more than 70% of the market worldwide, with more than 4 million babies treated since the launch of our first product. And then we are working also on other complications of prematurity and other issues related to the neonates, like uh, the neonatal uh, withdrawal syndrome from opioids, uh, when you have the mother, which is opioid dependent and give birth to a, to a child, this baby goes into a um, dramatic withdrawal syndrome few hours after birth, and we are developing products also for this very peculiar condition, uh, as well as uh, brain injury and other problems of the neonate. And the third leg, let's say, of the company, of course, is highly specialty care and rare diseases, which is the one I'm working on. And in the recent past, uh, since a few months, we have built up a specific structure, a business unit for tackling on rare disease. And this business unit is multinationally uh, oriented. It's based uh, in the headquarters are in Boston, the East Coast of the US. And then we have uh, um, most of the R&D activities in Parma, Italy, in Stockholm, in Sweden, uh, as well as we have the, our hematology group in Toronto, Canada. And this is more or less the general overview on, on Casey. And in Casey, we have been working on many products and many therapeutic areas and from smart generics to cell and gene therapy. So I would say a bit of the old spectrum. And one last thing I would like to, to mention about Casey is that we are, legally speaking, a benefit corporation in the US and in Italy. And we were certified B Corp. The largest pharmaceutical company certifies as B Corp, so trying to do also some good for society and the environment in addition to uh, the good we do for patients. Thank you. Thanks, Diego. So it seems that 
given the distributed nature of the team at KAZ, perhaps you know you were better prepared than most of us in terms of being able to handle the current COVID-19 pandemic and all the challenges that are involved in now everyone being remote. Would love to hear your thoughts on the challenges or perhaps the unique nature of having such a distributed team across many different continents and how you have organized, let's say, even your team. Well, it's in fact, it is a bit complex <laughs> uh, to manage for various reasons, from time zone to cultural differences as well, and also for uh, the complexity of um, getting together and work together. I have to say that in that, we were probably a bit more prepared than other more focused, more centralized, geographically united groups uh, in- for, for this pandemic, because we have always worked remotely in a way that has always been somebody remote. I don't think I've had one single team meeting with less than 50% of the people being somewhere else in the world. And it's a little bit difficult to maintain and organize, especially because uh, at the end, we can put in place processes, we can have uh, you know all the technical knowledge, but management of large projects is mostly about people and a flow of information. And this is, of course, the most critical thing to be maintained when you work in different locations. We're trying to put people with similar functions together in the same office as much as possible so that they can speak each other. But uh, we also have uh, cross-sectional teams that are working with a schedule of meetings and set of practices in terms of uh, document management and interaction that enable to work also remotely. Right. And, you know, I think uh, one of the interesting things that I know we had talked about before is that your highly distributed team also brought some pretty interesting innovations to the European market in terms of cell therapies and gene therapies. I would love to hear a little bit about those sort of landmark modalities that you brought to bear. Yeah, those were very big challenges. And I think we've learned a lot and probably the, the whole field has learned something from uh, from our cases. In both cases, these were early days product and so mainly coming out from academic research. So in one case, we funded with an academic institution in Italy, a spin-off company devoted to stem cell products. And we work with that from re-engineering their process from an academic environment to an industrial environment and then reuse using all the evidence uh, already produced for those products to support the registration. And on the other side, we partnered up with a biotech company, which is also a spin-off company from a university in Amsterdam, uh, the Netherlands, for the gene therapy. And I think that probably the three big takeaways from these stories, the first one is that regulatory science is evolving enormously, and there is an um, extremely acute interest, uh, not only from the industry, but also from the regulators to discuss on how to do the next steps and how to combine science and regulatory, which is not as easy as one might think. Uh, as soon as you understand, I have, I have a friend in, uh, in case who says that regulatory is a little bit like the, the lawyer of pharmaceutical development in a way. So you have to combine this culture based on previous cases, on rules and regulations with something that is evolving much faster than that. And this is the, the really complex but fascinating game uh, behind it. And the second thing probably that we learn is that access to patient is complex. It's complex in terms, of course, of price and reimbursement, as everybody knows, but also in terms of organizing the entire network from a logistic perspective, medical perspective, to get to that individual patient. And this is highly challenging business, which is very different than the way we're used to distribute our own products, even the very high specialty product. And the third one is that 
once again, it's all about collaboration. You, uh, differently than most of the traditional products, you don't have all the knowledge around the product, the biology of your pathway, the understanding of the disease, everything inside your company, but you have to break walls and go out and you have a very distributed understanding. And in these products, the biologic understanding is so connected with the clinical understanding that it's very complicated to disentangle two elements. And so you always have to partner up and team up to do that. Great. Thanks, Diego. Switching uh, gears a little bit, we'd love to better understand some of the work that you're doing specifically in rare diseases and inherent to working in rare diseases is that it, it can be quite a, a challenging space given access to patients and sometimes limited data. So we'd love to hear your viewpoint on you know, perhaps the pros and cons of developing uh, assets for rare diseases. Yes, uh, rare diseases are a challenging environment very challenging and, and getting more challenging in a way every day. Um, we've been working on uh, rare diseases that are um, in a way rare, but not so rare. They are sufficiently well understood. Uh, and for instance, we are working a lot on Fabry disease, which is a relatively well understood rare disease. But we're also working with extremely rare and completely not understood diseases and registered the product, for instance, in, in Europe and uh, in late stage development in the US for alpha monosidosis, which is a disease that, for instance, uh, 30 years ago was just a label, a name. It's uh, one lysosomal storage disorder, but up to, let's say, around 30 years ago, uh, it was more of a theoretical disease. There is the enzyme, so there must be a disease related to the malfunctioning of the enzyme. And so in that situation, when you have so little knowledge built up on the disease, the challenges are even larger than for, let's say, the average rare disease. So in a way, I think there are these two subwords in the rare disease. There is the group of the cystic fibrosis, uh, Duchenne, uh, or Fabry, in which you have already multiple treatments on, on the market or upcoming in the pipeline of various companies. And so it's complex. It's complex to find patients for your own clinical trials, but the main challenge from an industry perspective is to identify and develop treatment that bring a real value to the patient. So either disruptive treatment or even treatment that are technologically more traditional, but they can bring added value and, and cover unmet medical need by the current treatment. Conversely, when you move to extremely rare diseases where maybe you are the only one developing a treatment for that disease, that the big challenge is finding patients on one side and on the other, building up the knowledge and the understanding and the awareness around the disease together while you're building up your development plan. So in a way, you are like, as they say, you're building your car while you're already racing. And this is uh, probably the other phase of the complexity. And since we're going in a, in a future where there are more and more one-off treatment or short course of treatments, that, that will make it even more challenging in the future also for, let's say, the type of diseases like Fabry or Duchenne. I'm curious, Diego, given that there are a lot of new emerging startup biotechnology companies that are formed around rare diseases, it seems odd that a larger company like Chiese is focusing on that space. How do you think through the strategy of the difficulties, as you mentioned, as well as maybe the potential to cure a disease along with the economics behind it for this subsegment? Well, in a way, it all starts with the possibility of tackling 
existing problems, isn't it? So you start with the medical need differently than in other segments and in other areas where you might tackle just a market need. In this case, you, you have really to challenge yourself with the true medical need to be meaningful to, to the community and, uh, and to the business as well. So you start with that. And in that, uh, there is, of course, the additional challenge, which is sort of wake-up call and, and reality check that the possibility of uh, having and developing from the one side a treatment that is actually effective, so brings some real benefit to the patient. The second level of challenge is being able to demonstrate that because the inherent challenge in designing clinical trials and conducting clinical trials in these diseases um, are very unique compared to, let's say, large diseases. And finally, as you said, to, to have the, your economics straight and to have some return to make it sustainable. And in fact, I, I was mentioning that in case we are uh, investing more than 20% of our revenues in, in research and development, that's about the average of the case group. In rare disease, we are around 40% in order to support that level of development, uh, post-approval commitments, and also support to the patients. And I think that the interesting point here and, and what can be probably our, our little secret is that we have the thinking historically of larger company, of a company that does, in a way, traditional pharmaceutics, maybe niche sector, so in sector that are originally like neonatology, very close to rare disease, but still we have that understanding of trying to fit all of these three things together. What I see with, with many biotechs is maybe they're starting some of them with, with great ideas, a wonderful, unbelievable science behind it, but really not the idea of the end of the game. So the game ends when you can reach and treat the patient and, and you have to have the right mindset to design in your own development, thinking with that since the very beginning and not thinking only at investor or, or doing great science, but thinking of the needs of the patient as the starting point around which to build solutions which might be you know, very innovative or less innovative, but still effective and build up an economic case that stands. Great. Thank you, Diego. We're using Zoom to, to record this podcast. And I think this might be the first podcast that we've recorded with someone that's, that's currently based in, in Europe and, and you're in Parma, Italy. You know, obviously Italy was uh, hit quite hard by the COVID-19 pandemic, but just to you know, actually focus on, on something positive, we'd love to hear from you, what was something that has been perhaps a pleasant surprise in terms of what's been going on in Italy and, you know, it could be about working from home or something that you just found refreshing through all of this being in, you know, one of the hardest hit countries that's been dealing with this for quite some time. Uh, well, that's a very interesting question. I think there are, there are many, many positive elements, many, uh, let's call it silver linings or more learnings from, uh, from this experience. Probably the first one is that you start realizing what's important for you, what's important for you, and uh, also in terms of uh, relationship with other people. So you start uh, maybe texting or calling your friends, but not to be social, but only the people that re really matter in your life. You get the occasion to stay more with your family, even in situations that are unusual. I have a six-year-old child who goes around the, <laughs> around the house and, and uh, well, I was used to, to stay with him only during the evening and, and the weekends. And now I see him also during the day in situations that I would not have seen in other cases. And the third element is that to do all of this, to care for your family, to care for friends, to get in contact with other people, you have to make a little bit of an extra effort. It's like it's more rewarding 
and and has more value in a way. So, for instance, in in the office, we we started doing this um, coffee time in the middle of the morning. We we meet up over uh, over Teams or Zoom or Life Size or other platforms, and and um, and we stay together a little bit. And and it's almost uh, more um, relevant than what it was to go and having a coffee when we were uh, at the office. And finally, probably there is also the fact that since we were always traveling and, and in different locations, we probably see each other <laughs> more in these days yeah. than we were used to when, when it was possible to see each other. Yeah, yeah. Qu- quite quite ironic in, uh, in that sense. Excellent. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing that perspective. You know, I've certainly been feeling similarly where you start to value things perhaps in a more appropriate way uh, when we're forced to just reflect on our lives and the transient nature of, of a lot of what yeah. we had been doing. Awesome. You know, the last quick question I think we'll we'll ask you here before we wrap up is based on what you're seeing so far in the market and the new innovations that your team and others are bringing to bear, do you feel like we're in the golden age of biotech right now? Interesting. If there is a platinum age, I will say yes. <laughs> uh, but I think that most of the interesting stuff are still to come. Gene editing, for instance, and, and other technologies that are getting around that. I think that will be very interesting as well as uh, the possibility that we start having to manipulate RNA as well. So I think, yeah, that there is pretty interesting things to come. I also have to say that I think that the pharmaceutical industry will evolve a lot also around the patient with things that are not necessarily pharmaceutical product in, in a large sense, but they are also services, devices, uh, but even possibly uh, procedure processes, we might end up at a certain point in the future where we might be responsible for the health status of a person. So not only with the product, but with the product or other products, services, whatever it is needed to get to a certain outcome or to have a certain value delivered to a person. So I think that the evolution will be in something that we might find it a little bit difficult to visualize today, but totally exciting. Great. Well, uh, Diego, on on that note, uh, wanted to thank you for for taking some time to to chat with us. Uh, We really... uh, enjoy the conversation and, and learning about you and, and the exciting work that's that's happening at the Casey Group. Me too. It was a real pleasure to, to be with you guys and, and congratulations, by the way, for your podcast. Always interesting. Oh, thanks so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Biotech2050pod. Again, that's Biotech2050pod.